A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome back to the Borough Market Podcast and Borough Talks the summer series of panel discussions on the world of food and drink. In this episode, we're discussing the drinks revolution and the impact of dozens of small breweries and distilleries on London's vibrant and innovative cocktail scene. Angela Clutton chairs a panel of experts and asks what it takes to become success in this rapidly shifting environment. And on the panel, Dave Broom, Glaswegian writer, broadcaster, lecturer and all-round expert on spirits and the art of distilling. Kat Falstead, a senior buyer at England's oldest wine and spirit merchant, Berry Brothers and Rudd, and the company's first ever female master of wine. Dan Tapper, food and drink writer and self-taught brewer. And Tony Conigliaro, internationally renowned drinks creator, founder of the Drink Factory Consultancy, and three acclaimed mould-breaking London bars, 69 Colbert Row, Bar Termini, and Untitled. As always, the audience is made up of a mix of food and drink lovers and professionals, and I asked them why they'd come tonight. First, support the borough market for uh, what happened a month ago and uh, feeling a, a sense of uh, supporting the, the communities that, that exist in borough market and the product and the opportunities through uh, all the conferences um, to learn more about uh, the spirit industry. Uh, I'm here to come and listen to uh, Dave Broom and uh, Tony Conigliaro, among others. Um, I've been in the drinks industry for, uh, for a little while and I'm trying to start my own uh, business. So, uh, so you're I'm, looking for some advice? I am indeed. It's always fantastic to uh, listen to uh, Dave, uh, especially talk about actually literally anything. So uh, I'm pretty excited. Um, I'm a member of the Cookbook Club, and I got an email from Angela to say that uh, we'd really like to support the borough market, and obviously that's why we're here. Well, we've attended these what, talks before. They've been really interesting things we never would have had an interest in. We came and heard uh, ideas, concepts, and it's been fun. And they have some good snacks and food, and it's fun to be at the borough market. And we also have one of our son's friends, who's actually, we're from New Orleans, and one of our son's friends has started up a small distillery of his own, and so when I saw this, I thought, oh, next time I talk to Edward, I'll be able to actually talk in an intelligent way. Some of the panellists to ask what piece of advice they had for anyone wanting to get into the drinks business. Tony, king of cocktails in, in London, can we talk about Because Angela says that you run the best bars in town, so we have to believe her, don't we? It's very we? kind of her. <laughs> what would you say to people, there are plenty of people in the audience here who want to be you, who want to uh, create new cocktails in this fantastically diverse market in that mm. London is. What's one piece of advice that you have for them? Um, try not to copy. I mean, you just really, really know every aspect of what you're doing of the trade, you know, and get out there and really work it. Uh, because the more you know about the trade, the more you understand about the trade, the more you've learned about the spirits, the cocktails, the drinks, the people and the service, the more you can create something that is more unique, that describes what you want to do rather than what you know, describing what someone else does. Yeah. And imagination is key, isn't it? Um, I, I think it's just diligence. You know, I think imagination, you know, can be a big part of it, but if you're not imaginative, just be diligent to, to being aware of, you know, doing something that's true to you rather than, you know, something else. Brilliant. Yeah. How important is it to you to be to, at Borough Market tonight? Oh, it's fantastic. I love Borough. It's always been a part of my life since, like, I'm a Londoner born and bred, so... Are you are you a drinks person? Um, I am a bit of a drinks person, both in the imbibing of, but also the making of. I'm an amateur cocktail maker. Yeah, yeah. My husband and I have a little kind of mixology thing going on. So yeah, I am very interested in the way that food and drink kind of come together. And you said that you're a big fan of Tony's bars. I am a big fan of Tony's bars. I am. When I read out the list of his bars, I was basically saying all the places I like to go and drink. 
they are amazing boss because they're, they're cool in very, very different ways. And I think that's a lot of what the guys are talking about today. It's about finding ideas, getting your ideas through rather than just replicating what other people are doing. We are such a wonderful melting pot of influences and ideas. That then bursts out in your creativity. And it was true for him in cocktails, but it's true in all across the drink sphere and also across the food sphere. We have so much going on here and we're also really happy to look back into our heritage. So we take on things at the moment, we look ahead and we look back. The mix of all that is what makes it really exciting. So Dave, a lot of people here in the in the audience here are here with some advice. They may be interested themselves in becoming distillers. What's one piece of advice you'd give to people taking to take home? If you want to become a distiller, taste, taste, taste again. Uh, go around and see as many people as you can from big companies and small. Uh, ask them questions. You know, how do you do it? Why do you do it? What are you doing? Then work out what they're not doing and begin to try and craft something that takes the best aspects of what they're doing but make it your own. Uh, but it takes a long time to actually work it out. There was a lot of emphasis on, you called it shoe leather, getting out, doing the stuff, you know, making it by hand doing your own social marketing, just basically not going through the machine. You know, the, the market's becoming so much more diversified. Uh, Small-scale uh, distillers are, are you know, financially viable, so you can do it, but it takes a lot of work. Uh, it takes a lot of work to cut through. Uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it's entirely possible. You really have to believe in what you're doing. You have to have a business plan, uh, and you do have to be able to go out and do that shoe leather and sit at bars and build up relationships. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. Any successful salesman anywhere in the world has been to a bar and then gone back to that bar and gone back to that bar, not even necessarily sold anything, but just made the face known. Uh, and it takes a long time, but the good ones work out. Dan Tapper. Um, I'd say embrace diversity. So um, one of the strengths of a small-scale producer is that they can really keep an eye on new trends and react to those trends. Whereas kind of the, the, the bigger breweries uh, historically, historically have been very slow to react to, to kind of new trends. So, you know, get out there, get on social media, see what's happening and try and answer to the needs of kind of craft beer fans. I'm a great believer in the kind of in Oscar Wilde approach, which is kind of the definition of a cynic is somebody who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And, you know, I think great craft brewers are people who know the uh, price of nothing and the value of everything. So they're not always, uh, you know, willing to put profit before quality, and I think that's really key if you want to stand out from the crowd. Kate Howell, director of communications at Borough Market, reminded us what the market is all about after a very difficult month. It's lovely to see so many of you on a wonderful British summer's evening. I hope you've all got your blankets. We've got plenty of food and drink and stimulating conversation that will help keep you warm and uh, fend off that rain. Um, my usual introduction talks about hashtags and uh, enjoying the food and drink, but it would be remiss of me uh, not to mention what a difficult month it's been for everybody involved with Borough Market. Um, whilst first and foremost our thoughts obviously remain with those directly affected by the events of June the 3rd, um, the market itself is a very resilient community. Uh, the traders are back doing what they do best, providing food and drink from around the world for London and providing that with a smile. So it's great to have uh, so many people here this evening being part of that community. So thank you very much for coming. The ticket sales from this evening and all um, have gone towards our trader support fund. So your support is really very much appreciated by that trader community. Um, if something can be taken from the last month, it is really an affirmation that what we do here uh, really matters. Um, markets provide a focus for communities. They are places where people can come together. They are an international, in Borough's case, melting pot where people can come and share. They are places of hope, places where friendships and relationships are made. And that's very much in evidence this evening. So thank you for being part of that. That's the serious bit over. What you're here for is to hear from our amazing panel um, who are here to talk about their expertise within uh, the drinks scene within the UK today. Um, you're going to have the opportunity later to sample some of the food and drink from our traders, um, some wines and a very special cocktail that's been made for you. 
Um, so enjoy that. There's plenty of time for questions afterwards. Um, do speak up. There'll be microphones roaming. Um, but I'm going to leave you in the very capable hands of a very special lady this evening. Uh, your moderator for this evening, Angela Clutton, vice chair of the uh, Guild of uh, Food Writers. <laughs> but I'm going to say, most importantly, she might not say herself, chair of uh, Borough Market's very own cookbook club that I know many of you are members of this evening. Um, thank you very much, Angela, for chairing this. You're going to do a great job. Um, we're going to continue the conversation online with a few hashtags, hashtag Borough Talk, which I'm obliged to say, but we're also running a special hashtag, Love Borough. So thank you very much for being here. Have a brilliant evening. Thank you, Kate. Um, hi, everyone. As Kate said, my name is Angela. Um, welcome to the latest of the 2017 Borough Talks season. Tonight, we're here to talk all things drinks, spirits, wines, beers, cocktails, and we have um, a really stonking panel of experts and specialists right across that spectrum, and they're going to be giving you their insight, their opinions about what's happening in the UK drinks world at the moment, and also some practical tips about getting into it, whether a business or an individual. What we're going to do first of all is just introduce the panel, and then we're going to get stuck in. That's all going to take about 45 minutes for everyone to talk to you about their, their views and take on it all. And then as we go along, if you can store up your questions, so then at the end, we're going to have a good 15, 20 minutes or so, an opportunity for all of you to ask anything you want to know from our panel. So going to kick off to my left with Dave, Dave Broom, who is writer, broadcaster, lecturer, all-round expert on spirits and the art of distilling. He's written 12 books. Yeah, I think so. 12 books. Yeah. Two some of them, them are very small, though. <laughs> well, some of them are here as well, so they can yeah, touch yeah. them themselves. But the good ones are here. Yeah, we've got Rum, yeah. Rum the Manual, and the World Atlas of Whiskey, I think. Yeah. So two of Dave's brilliant books are here. Um, Dave, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you started out working in the industry? Yeah, I, I did a degree in English uh, at Stirling Uni uh, and then went to Edinburgh and there weren't very many jobs for English graduates. Uh, I don't think much has changed, to be perfectly honest. Uh, and I was walking past a branch of Oddbins and, and there was a sign in the window saying help wanted and I went in and I got the job and I stayed with Oddbins for seven years. Uh, and then after that, I did WACT up to diploma and then I ran a pub for a year and I was writing about jazz and weird music and wanted to get into writing. And then a job came up at a weekly trade a magazine called Off Licence News, which was the offices fair, were directly opposite here. So this was kind of my old manor. Uh, so, yeah. I used Welcome to be, back. Yeah, it's, it's great to be back. Uh, so I stayed there seven years doing, it's a weekly magazine, so just writing about all aspects of the drinks trade, uh, you know, from, from bottled water to ardent spirits, but doing quite a lot of educational writing. And then decided to go freelance in 95, God, it was a long time ago, uh, and worked uh, in a, an Australian winery for a while because I was going to write about wine and wanted to understand a bit about writing about wine. For the too many musicians telling me that I wasn't a musician, so how could I be a critic uh, of their music? <laughs> so I figured, well, if I'm going to write about wine, at least I should learn how to use a hose, which is effectively what I did in Australia. Uh, and then came back and began specialising in spirits, okay, uh, gonna, as you do. <laughs> we'll look forward to yeah. more of that in a sec. We're just going to yeah. move down and introduce yeah. the rest of the guys. So we've got Katrina Felstead, who is a Master of Wine and the um, Senior Buyer for Berry Brothers and Rudd. Um, similarly, Katrina, do you want to tell us a little bit about how you got started in the industry and maybe a little bit about your role at the moment? Sure. Um, so, it's interesting, I'm going to echo Dave a little bit. Um, so, I studied languages at university, but equally found that there weren't any jobs for languages graduates when I left as well. Um, I spent the first four years of my career actually working for a Spanish petrochemical company, nothing to do with wine. Um, decided that importing plastics and rubber was not really floating my boat, um, and I was getting into wine at the same time. Um, then, interesting, uh, also went to Oddbins, um, started on the, as a trainee manager at Oddbins, and I ended up being a manager there for about three years before moving to Berry Brothers in 2007. Um, I was Berry Brothers for, uh, I've been there for 10 years now. For the first six years, I was in the marketing department, and then uh, four years ago, I moved into buying. And I currently, well, in my time at Berries, I've bought for all, from all of the New World regions, so everything outside of the classical regions of, of Europe. Um, but now I specialise in uh, buying for Spain, 
Portugal, Australia, and New Zealand. And Berry Brothers is not just the private customer side that you probably associate with it, Britain's oldest wine merchant, etc. We also have uh, an agency and trade arm called Fields, Morris & Verdin, FMV. And through FMV, we supply all sectors of the, the UK wine trade, from uh, national accounts, big supermarkets, uh, to people like Majestic Wine Society, right through to the on-trade in London, including a lot of the, um, the restaurants in Borough Market. Brilliant. So. Thank you very That's much, me. Katrina. Um, so next we have Daniel Tapper. Daniel Tapper is award-winning food and drink writer. In 2015, first book was Food Unwrapped, but that's not really what you're here for tonight. You're well, here for tonight because three years ago you started the Beak Brewery in Yorkshire. Do you want to tell us just a little bit, a little flavour of that before we go? Sure. I, I mean, I can't compete with Dave writing 12 books. But yeah. <laughs> I, I've so um, I initially I studied sociology at university. I started making documentaries for Guardian Films about current affairs. And after that, I kind of fell into uh, reporting about food issues. After doing about eight years of that, I got kind of bored of and jealous of writing about people who are making food and decided to start making beer myself uh, on a homebrew basis at home. Uh, after about four years of doing that, I decided to take the leap and I bought a, it's called a nano brewery. It makes about 300 bottles of beer at a time, and I started that in the Yorkshire Dales, which is where I'm from, and uh, began delivering that by bus uh, around Leeds and Manchester. Uh, since then, it's kind of grown, and I now uh, run. It's called a nomadic brewery, so I travel around the country making my beers on a kind of large scale, so I basically hoodwink large breweries into letting me to use their kits. <laughs> nice. Essentially. Cool, thank you very much, Daniel. Then, uh, last but definitely not least on the panel, we have Tony Cligliaro, who internationally renowned, award-winning, drinks, flavour expert, cocktail, supremo. If I were to list Tony's bars, which I will, they're also my absolute favourite bars in London. 69 Colbert Row, Bar Termini, Untitled, all fabulous, fabulous places. Um, Tony, just tell us a little bit about how you got started in the drinks industry. Um, <clears throat> I kind of started as a pot wash as a kid and uh, did all that kind of thing and worked in pubs. So I was kind of very familiar with all that. Then ended up at art school uh, and did that for many years, Wimbledon and Middlesex, and thoroughly enjoyed that until the real world hit me and then realized I had to have a job. Worked in the fashion industry, which I absolutely loathed. Uh, <laughs> it made no sense at all. Um, and then ended up kind of working for a friend of mine, cleaning glasses. Uh, everyone thought I was completely nuts because the fashion industry was paying a lot more, uh, but I loved it and carried on going. Was very fortunate to work with some absolutely incredible people like Dick Bradsall and you know, uh, you know Bruno Lubay and, and just incredible kind of flavorists and chefs and bartenders and characters and kind of stuck with it. Yeah. And it's going all right, yeah. Brilliant. All right, well, thank you very much, guys, for introducing yourselves so well. Um, we're just going to go through now and um, have a little chat with you all. And do feel free to kind of you know, chip in as we go through, but we're going to give you each your moments to talk about your particular realm. So, Dave, we're going to start with you, talking mm. about the world of yeah. spirits. Okay. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about um, innovations, what's happening in the world of spirits at the moment? Yeah, it's... I don't think there's ever been such a good time for spirits. Uh -huh. There's never been such a vast array of spirits which are available uh, to you, the, the, the wonderful public. Uh, so yeah, we are, I think, genuinely in, in a bit of a golden age. Uh, there are new distilleries opening up. Uh, there's new uh, ventures and, and new, new questions being asked about yeah. uh, what to distill and how to distill and how to... Uh, whereas I was talking to Kat earlier, you know, whereas kind of wine and spirits used to be very, very separate from each other, you, yeah. know, you, know, you, you wouldn't sort of cross-fertilise between it. I think there's an awful lot more of that taking place. So there's a lot of uh, new whisky distillers, for example, who've come out of uh, brewing. Uh, so they're using a lot of brewing techniques and different yeasts, etc., in, in making whisky. Yeah. So, so that's an element of innovation as well. The whole idea of flavour, I think people are now just thinking in terms of just making a brand, but actually really fascinated by the science of flavour. So what do you think I, 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 I think there's an amazing, amazing uh, you know, innovations going on at the moment. Do you think anything particularly kick-started that golden age? Uh, yeah, I, I think a lot of it came from America. It actually came from the craft brewing industry, okay. I, I think. Uh, and the fact that you know small-scale distilling, small-scale brewing was possible, and then these guys kept kept asking questions, and licenses became easier to obtain. Yeah. That then started over here, 
And I think then just generally around the world, people went, well, why can't we do it? You know, I think it was the idea that you could only make whiskey, for example, in the classic areas, yeah. or you could only make gin in classic areas. Uh, it's now going, well, why not? Why can't uh, you make whiskey anywhere in the world? I think that's going to be a theme tonight, world, isn't it? That it's easier for people now to kind of go, do you know what? We're just going to kind of you know, do yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think the, the information is out there. Uh, the knowledge is out there, so there is no excuse to make bad spirits. Unfortunately, people do make bad spirits, but there's no excuse not to make bad spirits, just yeah. like there's no excuse not to make good wine. Mm. You know, you know the, 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 the techniques are there. So, yeah, I, I do think we're at a very, very interesting uh, point in, in, in the history of, of spirits. Yeah. Uh, and I think from a consumer point of view, I think it's not just, oh, my goodness, you know, they're, okay, they're strong. Yes, we all know they're strong, but it was kind of, oh, thou shalt not touch because you know, they're a bit too strong and it's, you know, it's not the appropriate thing to have. I think people are, are treating them in a much more sensible way and actually including spirits, uh, whether it's through cocktails or, or whatever, in, 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 their, in their lives. My dad was a whiskey drinker. You know, yeah. He would have one dram of whiskey when he came home every night, but we never drank wine. But I think today's consumer will be saying, well, actually, I will have a gin, but tomorrow night I might have a glass of this, or the, you know, the night after I might have a glass of beer. So I think there's a, you know, a greater scope yeah. and a greater willingness to try, and, and, and that helps as well. And is there much um, cross-connection between different aspects of spirits of people who are, I suppose I mean, the people who are starting to kind of do more interesting and newer spirits? Is it quite a community of producers, or people work quite individually? No, I, I think there is... Uh, a genuine community uh, building up, and, and it's, it's very, very interesting to see that, you know, this dreadful word craft that, that, that keeps getting bandied about. You We're going to come uh, to that. Yeah, yeah. But, well, well, to, yeah. You know, but which uh, I, I don't know what your opinion of it is. It was certainly in spirits world, everybody's kind of like yeah. about that because how can you not say that somebody like Desmond Payne making, making gin for 60 years is not a craftsman? Uh, but I think you know the, the big guys are genuinely willing to help, and right. and. Yeah. Not just as paid consultants, but actually yeah, yeah. You know, to say, well, yeah, yeah well, I, we have expertise of hundreds of years. So, yeah. yes, uh, come and learn and we will, we will help you and we will teach you. So there always has been a very, from a production side, you know, marketing wise, everybody hates each other. But uh, from a production point of view, uh, there's always been this very, very tight and close community, you know, because in, in Scotland, for example, you know, if you're in a distillery and a piece of your, your kit breaks down, you're going to borrow it from the next distillery down the road or, yeah. and there might be a relative or whatever. So, so I, I think on a production side, yeah. there, there's a genuine community. Uh, and, Which makes it more and, exciting, and I guess. Well, it does. It does. I mean, for example, in Japan, I, I do a lot of work in Japan and the Japanese distillers did not talk to each other until pretty much the year 2001 when we got all the distillers up on stage. And that was yeah. the first time a lot of them had even met each other. Now they are actively collaborating with each other. So, so I, I think things are really yeah. changing. Yeah. Dave, I also wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about um, the world of writing yeah. about spirits and how you feel about breaking through in that and what, uh, what helps build a really good spirits writer, drinks writer more generally as well, but uh, spirits. Uh, ask why. Okay. You know, you just continually ask why. You know, I've been doing it a long time, uh, but I learn something new every day. You know, I learn something new with every glass I pick up. And I learn something new every time I meet somebody like Jim Beveridge uh, at Johnny Walker or, you know, I, I was, uh, I live in Brighton and a guy got in touch with me and he's making gin in his garage uh, in Shoreham. And I went along and saw him and he's really, really good at what he's doing. And I learned a huge amount from him. Yeah. So you've got to be humble. Uh, and I th but also, I think you've got to serve your apprenticeship. You know, yeah. you've got to do the hard work. You've got to go to the hard yards. And just because you can operate a computer doesn't mean you're an expert. You can't wake up in the morning and just go, I'm going to Yeah, do and I, I think that's one of the, one of the problems with, with <laughs> problems with the media. Uh, if you want to sound like a, a bishop and Father Ted, uh, but you know, <laughs> everybody wants things so quickly uh, yeah. that people assume that they know something just because they've managed to write a paragraph yeah. and their opinion matters. And opinion is a great thing. You know, I'm an opinionated guy. But actually, knowledge is much, much yeah. deeper and much greater and much more important to yeah. pass on that knowledge and pass it on in a humble way. I because think oh, that, that's what a writer's job is. A writer's job isn't to be, you know, to, to force the issue and just say, this is what I think. It's actually to be there passing on that information to the consumer. I think this is probably the best advice I've ever heard yeah. for anyone who wants to be a food or drink writer. 
I just think you've just absolutely just nailed it about what it is to really kind of be good at doing writing in either one of those spheres. That's fantastic. Um, just going to move on now, but thank you, thank you so That's much, all. Dave. Um, because you brought up the, the brilliant word craft, I'm going to leap, oh, if you God. don't mind, Kat, yeah. I'm going to leap down to yeah. Daniel <laughs> because it seems like a nice little segue mm. there. So, Dan, what is craft beer? Such a such a hard question to answer. I think we we all loathe the term craft beer in some kind of way, and I think that's because craft beer doesn't really exist as a concept in the UK. So, in the US, if you go there, if you make a beer and you call it craft, you have to be certified to call it craft beer. So, a brewery has to make under I think it's uh, two hundred thousand hectolitres, and it has to be independent to call their beer craft. If you come to the UK, the sort of problem we have now is you have kind of multinational brands that are kind of masquerading as craft beer producers. Yeah. So they kind of, they have all the marketing and they look hip. It's a label they can put on it. Everything else, and yeah. it's a label. So but the crazy thing is it's completely lawful to do that. So you can sell something as craft beer that hasn't been made in a genuinely craft-like So what way. does that mean for you? You're saying you're made in a genuinely craft way. What do you, what do you mean? So I don't know if anybody uh, read The Guardian today, but there is a really interesting piece that the Society of Independent Brewers are so worried by this at the moment that they're actually that, um, planning on creating some kind of certification okay. that proves that UK brewers are craft. And that kind of begs the question, what is a, uh, a craft brewer? Um, in their eyes, a uh, craft brewer is small and it's independent, but I would actually take it one step further than that. I mean, for me, a craft brewer is it's, it's a brewery that has kind of authenticity and it, it, it doesn't compromise. Um, and also, they're kind of not prepared to put profit before quality. And you can't really quantify yeah. that in any kind of way, but um, Probably one way of illustrating that is uh, quite recently, for example, there's a, a group of wine bars called Vinoteca, and they commissioned me to make a, a wine barrel aged beer for them. And I was like, okay, that's absolutely fine. And the, the amount of effort that's gone into creating this beer is just ridiculous. I mean, the winemaker's just driven over in a Renault Clio with this one barrel all the way <laughs> from Bordeaux to the center of London. It's taking us six months to age this beer, and in the end, we'll end up with 500 bottles of beer that we, we will probably lose money on that beer. And I'm not saying that craft, craft breweries should lose money. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But they should, be, they should be committed to making certain beers within the sound their portfolio. of craft beer bottles just being... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they, they should be sort of committed to making certain beers that, you know, don't make money and, and, that, and that puts kind of quality and provenance before profit. Yeah. And do you think those then are the things that good craft brew, breweries, brewers would have in common? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we live in a really, really diverse market in terms of craft beer at the moment, but there's quite a nerdy app. I don't know if anyone uses it. It's called Untapped. And a lot of my kind of beer nerd friends use it, and they, they rate their favorite beers and breweries. And if you actually look at that, the top 10... Um, most popular breweries in the UK all have three things in common. And the first thing is that they're really adept at making really hoppy but balanced pale ales. Now, that sounds boring, but that's kind of the bread and butter of yeah. the UK brewing industry. Yeah. So you have to be really, really pretty good, basically, at making hoppy pale ales, yeah. and, and that's, that's your bread and butter. Secondly, they're really good at interacting uh, with customers. So they don't sort of shut themselves away in the brewery and just stick their beer out there and hope for the best. They're, they're on social media, like checking out what the, the latest trends are. They're interacting with, with, with their customers and kind of spreading the word and the story of their brewery. And third, this may kind of sound like a really minor detail, but a lot of the top breweries now have tap rooms. So basically breweries on site. And that may sound boring, but it's a really great way of making... Uh, really good profit margins and sort of connecting with your customers and making your brewery a destination. And do you have that at Beak? <laughs> Sadly not. Because you know, I, oh, I, sorry. Yeah, I don't. Bad now for asking. Well, no, I don't have a... So I've gone a slightly different format where I don't have a bricks and mortar brewery. Okay. Instead, I kind of travel around sort of making, making my um, brews with different breweries. Just before we move on, Dan, do you want to tell us a little bit about some of the beers that you, that you do? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, moving back onto this idea of kind of genuinely craft beer being 
ridiculous and not making very much money. Yeah. So some of my favorite uh, beers are those that I've been barrel aging. So recently I've been working with, does anybody know Northern Monk in Leeds? They're a really, really great craft brewery. I work quite closely with them and I've um, basically got hold of a barrel from the Bolne Estate in Sussex and have been aging an Imperial Porter in that for the last year. So that's coming out really interesting. And we also spent a, a good amount of summer foraging for raspberries around the outskirts of Leeds. And <laughs> we've been aging a sour beer in, uh, over those foraged raspberries. Wow, wow. Yeah. Oh, amazing. And, and am I right in saying, Dan, that um, your beers are uh, developed partly to go with food, a very kind of food-focused... Yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's genuinely, um, like, I don't know if anyone's planning on setting up a brewery, but we live in really terrifying times to be a brewer. So there's more breweries per capita uh, now than anywhere else on earth. Wow. Um, and yet only 20% of people drink craft beer. So right. I think as a craft brewer now, you have to find a way of sort of setting yourself out from the crowd. Yeah. And yeah. the way that I've done that is used my experience as a food writer to kind of create beers that work particularly well with yeah. specific dishes. Yeah, interesting. Um, I'm just going to move on now then to um, Katrina, because I think that's a nice kind of thing for you to kind of link in with the, the partnering with the food, but also with the kind of craft yeah. aspect. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about how wine is mirroring some of these developments that the other guys have been talking about so far? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it is interesting because in wine, you definitely see in uh, certain regions, certain producers, um, a movement towards... The, actually, one of the keywords in wine rather than craft random is more artisan. That's the wine yeah. term. Um, so South Africa, particularly Australia now, are moving much more towards this feeling of uh, what we call minimal intervention winemaking. So effectively, what I always find is slightly amusing about this is, is this is going back to the way wine was made, you know, centuries ago. Basically, wine, the best wines are made in the vineyard, is a phrase. If you've got the right grapes, if you grow them in the right way, and, you've, and they are perfect when you harvest them, then when they're in the winery, the best thing you can do is to stand back and do nothing. But it's quite difficult because winemakers obviously study long and hard about all of the techniques and the scientific things that you can do to make wine. And in certain areas, uh, like Australia, for example, it's all been about um, the, the technical side of winemaking. And there, they're coming around now to the fact that actually we should stand back and look at the more natural way that wine is made. And they're getting a lot much better results right. from it. So it's a very similar theme. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and... Do you want to tell us a little about um, the UK market at the moment and the challenges and sort of yep. what's, what's kind of going on? It's quite interesting at the moment in the UK market, lots of things to talk about. Um, firstly, we find that um, the, the UK wine market is becoming increasingly polarised. So you've got on one side the supermarket big brands, that's where the mass volume is. Um, average uh, spend on a bottle of wine in the UK is £5.40. Um, so actually these days... You know, when I, when I was at university, that probably got you a sort of semi-decent bottle of wine. Uh, now, you don't get an awful lot of wine in your bottle for £5.40 when you think about the duty and tax involved. Um, obviously, I don't want to mention the, the, the Brexit term, yeah. but we... It's hard not to, though, isn't it, when it's you're talking about the to. UK market? Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's mainly exchange rates. Um, since last June, the exchange rates have, have gone crazy. Yeah. So you, do, or you are now spending more on your bottles of wine as well. So you've got that side of the market. The supermarket's a mass volume. On the other side, though, we're seeing an increasing interest in um, the sector that my company deals more in, which is the £10 plus a bottle sector. A lot more people are being more focused on quality now and provenance. It's definitely an increasing trend. People want to understand more about where the wine comes from and what the story is and who the winemaker is and what his dog's called (laughs) um, when it rained last year. This is the kind of... It's the story behind wine that makes it really interesting, um, for me, certainly, and I think for most people. And do you think that for... Sorry, Katrina. um, For producers as well, it's the focus for them to kind of find those stories to help them kind of get a presence and try and get their, yeah. get above the parapet. Certainly when you come to the, the, more, the quality focused producers and particularly the more premium, um, I mean most of them have their own stories naturally, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, why yeah, they're yeah. already famous. Yeah. But they certainly, there's a, there's a big focus on, on trying to learn to stand back. So, um, and it's quite hard to stand back and do nothing in the winery because it's your life, you know, your whole, your whole year is based on that moment when you pick those grapes that you've been tending throughout all the seasons through rain and shine and they're in the winery and suddenly that's the time when you're, you know, that vintage, you're going to, you're going to either make or break it depending on what you do or what you don't do in the winery. Um, there's a very um, famous uh, South African producer called Eben Sadi who is at the forefront of the new wave South African producers and he said he spent about 10 years when he started up on his own um, before he realized that actually he'd been doing it all wrong because he'd been doing his winemaking and after 10 years he said I realized I needed to learn to leave things alone I needed to learn to make myself stand back and at that point, his wines transformed and are now yeah. what they are today. Which That's are amazing. Phenomenal. When we were doing the introductions, um, it was really interesting that each one of you, when you were saying how you got started in your respective industries, mm. the answer was basically get stuck in mm. and do it. Yeah. And now, I wondered if you could just talk for us a little bit about ways that people might be able to kind of think about getting into the wine industry uh, and the different things that that might mean, I suppose. Sure. Um, there's a few ways. I mean, the main thing I would say, if you're interested in getting into the wine trade, is, is to start learning a bit about wine. So um, the WSET courses, that's the Winers for Education Trust, they're kind of the sort of fairly standard benchmark of a route through to learning about wine. You can study at home on those or, or do your courses at the actual WSET. But it's more um, finding out yourself and what, you've, what interests you and in exploring that. Um, for me, wine is always, always a real... Um, adventure and every wine tastes different and the beauty of wine is that there is no right or wrong answer it's all subjective and everyone's opinion matters so never be afraid of having an opinion um, one way for me to get into the wine trade what I, th- I would always recommend everybody is don't be afraid of the shop floor um, when I started I you both saying yeah, started at Odbins yeah. it's, a, it's a classic route into wine and spirits Odbins or Majestic I will say Odbins because that's where my loyalty is like um, but you know it's the best thing I ever did I spent four years at the Spanish Petrochemical Company umming and ahhing about how to get into wine and then I, I was a bit snooty about whether I wanted to work on the shop floor. And as soon as I did, I was like, why didn't I do this three years right. ago? It's the people you meet, your colleagues, the customers, the conversations you have, the wines you taste. I would recommend that to anybody. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
woefully neglected to say at the very beginning when I was introducing Katrina is that not only is she um, a master of wine, but she was Bro Brothers and Rudd's very first female mm. master of wine. Yeah. Um, and when we were um, planning for this, we were thinking a little bit about um, women in wine and the, the, the profile of the masters of wine and women. Yeah. Do you want to just touch on, touch on that? Of course. I think uh, there's definitely a perception, certainly historically, that the wine trade was very male-orientated. In my experience it was but that's certainly rapidly changing um, so at the moment there are 355 masters of wine in the world and a third of them are women now which is brilliant and in 2014 and 2015 that more women in each of those years passed than men so there's no reason to be afraid if you're a woman about getting into the wine trade it's it's very much an open playing field now yeah. um, and I do quite a few events in our cellars at Bro Brothers, and I'd say it over, often over half of our customers that come in um, are women yeah. and um, have very good, very valid opinions, really interested in wine, like I am. Actually, so. can I get all of your... Sorry, let that go. Um, each of your kind of thoughts on that, maybe, about yeah. the kind of you know, women working in the industry. It's maybe, you know, Dan, particularly thinking about brewing, maybe mm. I'm wrong to say that I perceive that as being quite a male industry. And no, I mean, it's completely a female industry, is it? traditionally. So okay. the, the, the thing is, uh, hops are female. Uh, yeast is generally female. Right. Um, traditionally, females were always brewing beer and the men were kind of serving the beer uh, in the pubs of right. public houses in yeah. people's homes. So actually, traditionally, beer is an industry dominated by women. And for some reason, I, I, I'm not a beer historian, but obviously over the last 200 years, women have been slowly pushed out of the industry. But there's a massive renaissance going on now and like some of the best brewers in the country are female. Uh, Jen Merrick, um, she just she won last year Brewer of the Year. Um, Ilkley Brewery has has a, a head female brewer, right, and they're okay. they, I think they're, they're genuinely genuinely creating some of the most yeah. exciting beers at the moment. Yeah. So yeah, there's, it's definitely a really female friendly industry. That's interesting. Um, Tony, I'm going to come on to you now. I'm going to ask you to come back to that question, actually, once okay. you've kind of done your initial thing. Um, and I wanted to leave you till everyone else has spoken, because in a way, I suppose I think of cocktails as being something which brings all of these worlds together. Um, and I think of you as being the most phenomenally creative person. And I'm really interested to hear your take on how the creative and the business aspects marry together. Um. <clears throat> Well, I suppose when you first start being creative, you just go nuts <laughs> completely and everything needs to come out and it all tries to come out at once and you, you don't know how to... It's like, it's like unleashing wild horses. Yeah. And then I suppose over a, a period of time, you realise that that's not the most efficient way to a work on a creative level or within a business. Yeah. Um, because, you know, if you're always experimenting, experiments have a cost. Yeah. You know, if you, you know, uh, want to get a piece of machinery that will allow you to experiment with certain things, that has a cost. So, you know, over the years, I think it's a question of creating a balance between the two. Yeah. Um, you know, having um, what a very wise friend of mine turned around to me and said, he goes, to create chaos, you need a lot of order. <laughs> That's good. You know, and it's completely true. And as yeah. far as, you know, the more ordered our company has become, Drink Factory has become, the more chaos we've been able to create. Yeah. Um, just because, uh, even on a really basic level, kind of like of, of, of recipes, you know, uh, when we first used to do recipes, we used to just, you know, do them. Yeah. And that's what it was. And then yeah. everyone would say, well, how did we just do that? And everyone went, oh, I can't just remember. It, yeah. um, but nowadays we have, uh, you know, files and files and files and files of, of recipes from, you know, the first uh, idea of, or the concept to how that led to the flavours, to how that kind of, uh, you know, the first permutation of how those flavours came together to, you know, the, the second, third, fourth, fifth, up until the 40th, 50th, whatever it might be. Um, but at any one point we can go back and see, oh, that went wrong. We yeah. can go back a step and do that. And that has made our lives so much easier. Because yeah. um, I remember there was, a, there was one particular combination from about, I don't know, 15 years ago that I'm still searching for that I cannot find. Oh, no. Um, it'd be great when you do find it. Yeah, though. no, it'd be exciting. <laughs> I'll let you know. Um, but, you know, I think it's, it, it's very important, but also kind of, you know, to have that order within a business allows you to kind of actually present what you do in a far better way, yeah. Um, you know, from presenting the cocktails to actually kind of having 
things on time. Yeah. You know, uh, and how they're presented, the training done, the, the, you know, all the elements that come together to create a list that's very strong that goes out and is ready to be received in a, yeah. you know, in a particular way. Um, you know, you have the answers to, to ping pong back and forward with the customer. So sticking with that creative fundamental part of it, can you talk to us a little bit about the process that you go through when you're creating a new drink? Or that you and your team go through, maybe? It's, it's, it's the team. Yeah. Um, it also is, I think, you know... Um, Actually, we should probably go back a step, because I'm not sure that everyone will know Drink Factory and how that fits into the bars and how the whole thing connects. Okay. Um, so, Drink Factory started out as a blog, because I, I realised at a certain point that I didn't want to just be talking or making the same drinks over and over again forever. Uh, so I was desperate to communicate with other people, but wasn't really quite sure how to do it that well. So I started the blog, but, and that was really interesting. That was about, God knows how many years ago now, uh, 2000, 2004. And I just kept kind of writing stuff that interested me. And slowly but surely that kind of got hooks in different places that I wasn't expecting from perfumers to designers right. to... Yeah kind of neurosurgeons to like the, the oddest type of people that just so happen to have an interest in booze as well as yeah. you know whatever, whatever they did um i in my kitchen had started borrowing equipment so i had a rotor vapor which is a a, a vacuum distillation unit so i started doing experiments at home i had a, a, a centrifuge that i'd borrowed baked and, and stolen eventually and you know it, and that was the first drink factory uh, right so it was kind of for me to make ingredients that were bespoke to my cocktails rather than having yeah. to go outside and buy them. Because one of the things I had a problem with was, especially in that period, was I couldn't find the ingredients that I wanted that were good enough for the drinks I wanted to make. So I started that. That kind of spread more uh, to when we opened up 69 Cobalt Road because I had a garret space upstairs. And I put all the machinery in there. We got some more machinery. We started working on that. So it was kind of making things upstairs and taking them downstairs, yeah. uh, uh, you know, at kind of almost a la minute. Um, and then that progressed again where we had a space where we started, you know, uh, being more consolidated and, and concentrated. And then the products would be delivered back to the bars. Um, now, it's now in its fifth generation. Yeah. We've got a full, you know, research and development kitchen. Yeah. Um, the product is made by mainly by the young gentleman at the back there, Dimmy. I thought I'd embarrass him. Hiya. Um, <laughs> hi, Dimmy. Um, love that. Uh, so, so yeah, so you have a team that work with you developing, and then um, so so all, all the whole, we've got a whole production line that goes to all right. the different bars uh, from a central yep. point. Uh, Demi, Zoe, and myself see every single stage of the production, so there's yep. an eye on quality. When we come up with ideas, we usually come up with stories. So one of the drinks you're going to taste later on is called Snow. Um, and the well, we we call them dioramas because we literally draw them out. You know, we went to art school, so it's. Uh, and Zoe, my head of um, research and development, also went to art school. So it's a it's a really good way to communicate ideas. We visualise them. Um, so the the visual aspect of that was we wanted to capture the notion of a snowflake landing on your tongue. You know, when you're. <laughs> How brilliant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so we just start working on that. We, we then look at the kind of flavors that will tell the story of that situation. Yeah. So we're kind of using flavor as a language to describe yeah. that situation. Um, that drink took almost two years to make. Wow. Because wow. we had one missing ingredient and we were driving ourselves mad. Yeah. But the whole team goes out and looks for things, thinks about it, mulls it over, yeah. comes back. We you know, have uh, brainstorming sessions, we try out new ideas, we then write the recipes down, we go back again until we crack it. Yeah. Um, What's lovely is that um, Tony's books, both of them, um, Six Sign Colebrook and uh, Drinks, both tell a lot of those stories as you go through. It's not just drinks recipes. You really kind of manage to convey a lot of the kind of stories that go with them as well. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it gives an extra dimension, but it also gives, I think, a level at which, as with the stories of beer, wine and yeah. spirits nowadays, you know, a, a, a kind of inverted story of, of um, you know, if everyone here knows what a snowflake tastes like, hopefully, but you will later if you don't, um, hopefully. Um, but it gives an extra parameter to have a conversation about. Yeah. You know, what we're finding is people 
want something to talk about in bars, not necessarily yeah. their everyday yeah. work or lives or thing. And if you give them something else to talk about, then they have something else to talk about. And even if it's an emotion or a reaction to a drink in a particular way, it allows them to kind of start a different kind of communication. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what the whole drinks industry is, you know, the whole world's trying to do is yeah. to talk. Um, Tony, can I just get your opinion on the London cocktails scene, for want of a better word, because I hate saying that. Um, um, and also, just to follow on from that, just what you think might be coming next for the kind of cocktails. Okay. Um, I think the London scene is probably the most diverse, the most interesting in the world. Um, I think there are other scenes that are equally kind of uh, as interesting, but not as diverse. Okay, that's cool. Um, just because you have so many different, you know, uh, people from all over the world here working. Yeah. Um, and or have worked and you, you, you know there's this residue and, uh, but also this resonance of, of, of people and what they bring to the table yeah. you know and because it's one of those jobs that you can pretty much do all over the world uh, you know people come here to get trained but then go back you know to, to you know where they're from or they stay here yeah. or you know and there's, there's a great deal of communication yeah. to and from but also kind of within the time itself yeah. so you know when we're talking to ourselves and we're brainstorming, we're always talking about, you know, what, what do you bring? You yeah. know, what do you know about that we don't know about? What can we incorporate from, you know, uh, you know for example, Bulgaria or, or, or wherever yeah. that we don't know about? Yeah. And make it part of our, yeah. our language. And I think that allows you to, I suppose, um, you know, have communication with more people uh, and because of that, I think some of the other scenes are more direct and more yeah. focused on what they do yeah. rather than so the ideas what and influences here. kind of coming together. Are yeah, more creative. What opens it up and makes the yeah. scene a lot stronger. You've also yeah. got so many different styles of drinks. You've got you know the very classic. Uh, you've got the, the kind of hotel bars. You've got the kind of dive bars. You know, uh, you've got the kind of uh, more modern kind of thinking bars. You've got yeah. you know so on and so on and so on and so on. Yeah, interesting. Well, look, these guys have all been expounding at you. Um, so now we're going to throw it open to all of your questions. Anything that you've been hoping somebody might touch upon but hasn't yet, um, you know, this is your opportunity to go for it and say it. And we'll try and open it a bit more amongst each other. And, you know, people will probably have a certain person they want to ask. But do, you know, guys have your opinions and, and throw in as well because you've all got so much to contribute and say. We do have a couple of microphones coming around. Um, if you can try and wait for the microphone, that would be great because otherwise you ask a question and no one else can hear what it is. Um, so, do we have anybody with a good question? Or any question, in fact? <laughs> yes, okay, we have a gentleman there. Hiya. And if your question's actually for somebody in particular, do say. Uh, it's, uh, it's probably for all of the, uh, the panellists. They're all clearly uh, very interested in quality of uh, the, the various areas they're, they're in. Um, and I come from a very technical background, so I'm intrigued. Is there uh, one technical piece of kit that is used in your industries Ooh. like to see eradicated in the industry? <laughs> and if so, why? Dave, do you want to go first? Oh, great, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, t a, piece of, a piece of kit that you... you Everyone else has got to time use. to think about yeah, it. Yeah, I know, that, that's great. I'm, I'm stalling here. Uh, as far as distillation goes, uh, chill, fil chill filtering machines. <laughs> they strip away uh, mouthfeel. Uh, and there are ways to, to get round uh, having clear spirit that isn't going to throw uh, any cloudiness. Uh, and you can also just educate people that if you add water, it might necessarily it might go cloudy. Uh, but I think removing mouthfeel is, is a bit daft. So uh, that's what I would get rid of. Katrina? Interesting question. Um, I would say the problem is with this is that you have two sides of the wine world. So you do the, the mass market volume side, um, as much as they're not wines that I would choose to drink, are absolutely fundamental to the wine business as well. But if I wanted to uh, go for that side, um, I would say there's something called the spinning cone um, that can be used in wine. And basically, you put the, it's kind of does what it says in the tin. It spins the wine around. Um, it's one way to uh, lower alcohol. Many different things it can be useful, but you can lower the alcohol because the, the wine spins so quickly that the, the component parts are split up and then you put the wine back together and then you have a slightly more... Um, reduced alcohol version. That doesn't use to completely take the alcohol out. There's something else you can do for that. Um, 
But what it does mean is that the wine that you then get back is, has lost some, you know, its soul. Um, it, to my mind, it might make it more appealing from a, a kind of mass market volume perspective if yeah. it's it not, you know, uh, half it's a romantic of way of saying it's lost its soul. That it's lost its yeah. soul. So for me, I'd, I'd love to see the end of the spinning cone. But, but then the wine world, the, the, the volume brands would disagree with me. You None made, of them will admit to using it, though. So, you made a good so. argument, though, I think. Yeah. Tony, I'm going to go to you next because I feel bad you're always the last one to talk. Um, technical. Um, bad cocktail books. Oh. Are you going to name them? Nope. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> No, just because I mean there, there are books like Dave Arnold's book, which is just one of the best books ever written about cocktails. It's just fascinating, interesting. But when people kind of take his theories and then regurgitate them and spin them around in a way that's not scientific, uh-huh. and just because it's a, an idea, yeah, I have a problem there. Okay, there's a little bonfire of those. Yeah. Uh, I think filtration units in brewing are the devil's work. So echoing. Dave there, and I, I also think I'm dead against finings, which are the uh, dried swim bladders of sturgeon fish that uh, you get in the vast amount of cask beer, and I'd like to see that uh, removed. Wow, okay. yeah. Save the sturgeon. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. a waste of sturgeon, <laughs> you know. I think. Well, I think you all put forward very convincing arguments for that. Great question. That's a great question. Yeah. Uh, has anyone actually got a microphone? Or there's a lady down here at the front. I was just wondering, I guess along those lines, um, you've all been talking about kind of small-scale producers and artisan or craft drinks being kind of the, the main focus at the moment. And so I just wondered um, if there's always kind of a new big thing, if the sort of small-scale producers are finding that the best quality, quality is minimal intervention, then in a way, where can they go from there? Or will people be happy to kind of keep things... You know, keep natural and, and kind of small-scale producers being the, the kind of next big thing forever. Mm-hmm. You were looking at Katrina as you spoke, so I'm going to take that as being the cue for the first... Yeah, sure. Um, I hope so. I hope it, conti- I hope it, it lasts. I think the, the wine world um, has swung in very just different ways, particularly the new world when it was all very much led by science um, compared to Europe, which, you know, they've been making wine for centuries, so that was kind of... They always did the way they'd always done them. Um, the very scientific side for kind of new world wines had its place, certainly, and they are, um, you know, so technically adept. They're, they're the, you know, the best in the world. But the minimum intervention, it's, it's, almost, um, it's almost an art in itself. You've got to stand back, and as I said with that quote from Evan, you've got to stand back and know when to uh, get involved and when to leave the wine alone. And for me, it's about quality, and quality is definitely... Um, from all the wines that you taste, the wines that where you've got a producer that is so in tune with the vineyard that he's been able to grow the grapes to perfection and then stand back in the winery and just let the wine make itself to a certain degree. Um, those just are the, the wines that have the most interest. They've got the most... Well, we, there's a term in wine called terroir, which is the, yeah. the fact that a wine can taste... Um, there's a sense of the place in which that, the grapes were grown in the wine. And that's what comes through in the minimal intervention. So I would, I would imagine that that will con- continue. It's almost like people going back to the roots of, of, of wine. Yeah. Dave, do you want to throw something? Yeah, uh, it, it's, certainly, it's a very interesting question uh, at the moment within spirits. Uh, and I think it kind of comes back a little bit to, to something I was saying earlier, which is you know, the, the guys who make Johnny Walker uh, are as passionate about their craft and quality as the person who's only got a tiny little distillery down the road. Uh, so th- I think that's really important. That, that's an important emphasis uh, to make. And I think what I've come across with a lot of, uh, of the smaller distillers is they're great enthusiasts, you know, and they really want to do something and want to make something different, but they're not business people. And I think you have to understand this is a business, and you've got to do the boring stuff, like distribution and sales and you know how are you actually going to sell this and also ask yourself some very very hard questions about how do you differentiate yourself against the rest of the market because uh, if you look at whiskey and I'll can, can look at whiskey and gin very quickly here yeah. there's 119 whiskey distilleries in Scotland if you're opening a new one that's who you're fighting against so you have to do something which is going to cut through uh, but it can't be contrived it has to be genuine 
so looking at the local, looking at what grows around you, taking beer, beer techniques. There's various ways that you can do this, but I'm not convinced that everyone is necessarily doing it. They're kind of just doing what everybody else has done for many years, and they won't cut through. And the same with gin. Uh, a lot of gin, of the new gin distillers, simply say, well, all I need to do is add a different botanical, and nobody's ever added it before, uh, and that's going to make my gin different. And they dial up so much that the gin's unbalanced. Gin is a much, much harder spirit to make than whiskey is. Uh, and I think a lot of the gin distillers have perhaps become, become croppers uh, as a result of that. So it's, it's coming back to learning. And there's a great future for small producers, but it's a business and you've really got to cut through and you can't be contrived. And you have to have the courage to say, no, that didn't work. And actually, the glorious thing about spirits is, redistill it if necessary, but don't put out anything onto the market that isn't any good because eventually people will realize that paying 50 quid for a bottle, uh, which isn't actually of great quality, you know, yeah. I think you'll be just, rumbled. Just to know. add to what yeah. Dave just said, uh, I think there needs to be a brutal honesty with yourself if you're going to do it. Yeah. Is, is it coming from the right place? Is it, you know, uh, are you doing it for marketing or are you doing it for the love of the spirit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. because... The whole thing with the gin is, is so true that it's another gin with another thing. But, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the, the ones that really, really shine through and are excellent are the ones that come from a really genuine place uh, uh, and love of what they do. Yeah. yeah. And, and as you said, the wine is a biz the business side is really important because it, obviously it's very good to talk about minimal intervention like I have, which sounds very romantic. But you need a certain amount of financial capital to stand back and let your wine ferment as long as it wants and stay in the barrels for as long as it wants. A lot of you know, wineries don't have the luxury of, of that because they need to turn the wine around, yeah. ferment it, make it, sell it, and clear the, clear the cellars in time for the following vintage to come in the next year. So there's all sorts of constraints. It's, it's, a lovely, it's the ideal if you're a premium producer who's got to that level where you can, you can afford financially to sit back and yeah. watch it so it's it's quite a complex yeah. Yeah. people are going to fall for the romance of it yeah oh my goodness i'm a distiller i'm a winemaker and then yeah. you know but as dan said the horrible reality to not make ma money yeah. um yeah. we have a lady who's bursting with a question there and we had one down here so going to the, uh, do you have a microphone do you want to go for it yeah Creativity and innovation, which I think is fantastic, and there's often there's obviously a lot of um, a lot of great upcoming brands um, all across London at the moment, and also uh, across the world as well. Turning it back to the question, the point you just raised about it's got to be uh, viable as a business as well. What way do you think is the best to approach sales and marketing for um, the upstart brands where they're trying to break into a new space, um, other than perhaps going through wholesalers, which is perhaps more for, for established brands to start with? Um, Katrina, I'm going to come to you because I know your background at Barry Brothers and Rudd was initially marketing. Yeah? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, I think if you're a small producer, certainly when, um, up and coming, I do think you need to be really switched on for social media these days um, because uh, whereas in the past you didn't really have a direct interaction with your consumer you know, the person actually drinking your wine if you're a, a small winery in Spain someone in London is drinking a bottle of wine you're never really going to meet but now with social media you have your, your, you, the option of, of having your story out there so anybody drinking a wine can google you look at your website look at your twitter feed and it's important to react, I think, to what people are saying, to be constantly on top of, of what people are yeah. talking about. I mean, that's the same for lots of businesses. Yeah. But I do think for an up-and-coming producer, that side of things has given them a direct access to the consumer yeah. that they've never had before. I'm going to say that when I went on um, the Beat Brewery's website, yeah. I felt I knew in a second what your beers were and what you were there to do. I, I mean, I was just going to add, can I just say, if, if, I mean, if you're thinking of setting up a food brand, just... Do not, under any circumstances, waste your money on marketing. That's my personal opinion. It, it costs a lot of money, and you just end up like somebody mimicking an authentic brand. I've lost count of the amount of small-scale small -scale breweries that have just blown their breweries, going to expensive marketing companies, and in the end, their, their labels look crap. Their branding doesn't look yeah. authentic and they just sort of... It becomes a kind of paint-by-numbers yeah. version of authenticity, and I think... Um, as we've touched on, social media is so important because it's a kind of direct reflection of who you are as a person. And I know that sounds kind of cheesy, but I think at the end of the day, a kind of a real brand has to represent who you are as a person. 
and consumers aren't stupid. They, they see through uh, glib marketing campaigns and they recognize uh, you know, brands that, that, that don't compromise. Yeah, thank you. Um, we have here um, available a few of the books from the panel if you'd like to go and take a look. Um, we also have um, some of the Love Borough range of aprons and badges and things, and everybody would really support, would really appreciate rather any support you can give towards that because everything goes towards the um, Traders Fund. Um, we have some really lovely food and drink that traders have um, supplied for us to all to enjoy tonight. And even more excitingly possibly than that, because it's a, a one-off, we have um, the uh, snow that Tony was talking about earlier being made over there. And I think if you want to head there first before going to everything else, that would be appreciated. Um, so I'm going to leave you all to go and enjoy. Um, some of the panel, I think, are maybe going to stick around. So do nab them and ask anything you haven't had the chance to. But um, huge, huge thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've enjoyed it. Thank, Thank you. you. The next Borough Talks is on September the 12th, when the panellists will explore the viability of less damaging systems of food production. You can get your tickets and subscribe to this podcast on the Borough Market website, boroughmarket.org.uk. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.